Welcome to this week's episode of Juicing the Big Screen, your movies review and discussion podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Joshua Tracy. And I am one of your hosts, Corbin Heller. And uh, you might be wondering yourself, hey, where the fuck were you guys last week? Um, we have lives. They get in the way sometimes. Suck a dick. Um, we're coming at you a week late. It is what it is. Yeah, if, uh, if that's not a good enough answer for you, um, my job sucks. Just we talk about it all the time. And boy, it's not changing anytime soon. So it won't be the last time it happens. Get over it. Oh, yeah. Um, all jobs suck. The profit is just the exploitation of labor, man. Um, but not ironically. You say that sarcastically, but it's it's accurate. Yep. We <laughs> uh, believe it wholeheartedly. Very much so. <laughs> so, <laughs> let's talk about movies, though. Uh, Corin, where do you want to start? Do you want to start in uh, California or France? Uh, I don't know the difference between the two, so you pick. Uh, all right, let's start with the 400 blows. I feel like closing on Once Upon a Time in Hollywood would be fun. Sure. Um, that is sure. the only decision-making I have for that. All right, so then starting with the 400 blows, that's the name of the movie. came out in 1959. It was uh, written and directed by Francois Truffaut, um, with also a screenplay adaptation credit to Marcel Moussy. I'm guessing at all these pronunciations. This, far, this film stars Jean-Pierre Léo, uh, Albert Rémy and Claire Moriel. I'm just having fun with it now. <laughs> um, I don't. I don't discourage you from doing that. It's very fun. French doesn't is sound very right, fun but I don't know enough about stars to, to disagree. <laughs> uh, um, uh, watch Always Sunny. It's good. It's such a great show. I don't have a budget in IMDb. I don't have a budget in Wikipedia, so therefore the budget of this movie did not exist. Um, but I have the box offices anywhere between. <laughs> I have the box offices anywhere between um, one hundred twenty-seven thousand dollars on IMDb and thirty million dollars <laughs> on Wikipedia, and I do not know what to believe. So let's just say it did well. I know for a fact that it's not thirty million dollars. <laughs> I I mean maybe. Uh, adjusted for inflation over the course of 50, 60 years? Yeah, maybe. I don't, but Maybe? Fuck. Uh, the guy has like three outfits over the course of the entire movie and there's nothing that would even come close to like a special effects, come close to oh, no, being no, no, a no. special effects budget. S like Sorry, not, not budget, box office. That's my bad. Sorry. Oh, okay. I was going to say like that's... Okay. I can at least understand why yeah all right moving on uh yeah the tagline for this movie is from the vanguard of new filmmakers comes an extraordinary motion picture do better <laughs> this is 1959 i guess they didn't care about um ad copy which uh we should care less about ad copy in general but oh well unless you're watching mad men that's but see, that's not about ad copy it's about fucking with ad copy as well, the backdrop. <laughs> uh, Touche. Okay. And if you go, Josh, could they make a show that is six, seven seasons? I forget how many. That's strictly about fucking. And uh, let yes. me tell you, folks, it's phenomenal. And yes, they did. It's a great, great show. It really is. Uh, this film has one, count them, one uh, Oscar nomination. It was for best writing. Um story and screenplay written directly for the screen for Francois Truffaut and Marcel Mossi. Uh, they did not win the winner that year. I'm trying to scroll down to find it. Um, nope. Ah, okay. The winner that year was Pillow Talk. Um, Great music video. I've never even heard of this movie. Uh, it is a Damn. Rock Hudson Doris Day feature. Uh, also nominated that year are several classics. Um, the 400 Blows, North by Northwest, the Alfred Hitchcock mm. picture, Wild Strawberries, the Ingmar Bergman film, um, and then Operation Petticoat that I've also never heard of before, but that sounds like a Corwin movie. Petticoat? Operation Petticoat? Looks like a war movie. Mm. That's honestly does sound very familiar. <laughs> Interestingly yeah, enough, um, 
This movie was not nominated for, for Best Foreign Language Film, which is very interesting. The nominees that year were uh, Boy of Two Worlds from Denmark, The Great War from Italy, The Bridge from Germany, Village by the River from the Netherlands. Oh, and then actually France had another, had a different um, nominee, Black Orpheus, which was the winner that year. So that's very interesting. Even though this was an Oscar nominee in a different category because France had already had a picture nominated in that category. I do not believe you get two. Um, the, the winner was the other submit submission. So interesting. There you yeah, go. Look at that. Learn something yeah. new every day. I sure do. Uh, anyway, this movie is about a young boy left without attention who delves into the life of petty crime. This was my movie. So I'll get us started. Um, it's really a wonderful movie about adolescence that doesn't get marred in a lot of the melodrama, uh, that you see in other movies about adolescence. It's not so much like he's in high school and the girl doesn't like him and he's got to make her like him so that he can go get, go to prom and figure out who he is or he's got to get into the better college because his friends got into a better college than he did. And he's smart too. Um, and there's also a matter of factness that he approaches his situations with that even let the dramatic moments don't feel as though they are world ending events. They feel very much so like things that he must confront that he is going to confront in whatever manner he is capable of confronting them. And that's what it's going to be. And the kind of bluntness of, like the bluntness, but the touch of the character, I think brings about what is a really fascinating story because it's almost so casual that there is a tension of what's going to happen next. That actually isn't the point of the movie. And that tension is really just, in part, yes, wanting to know, you know, what's going to happen next with this kid as he, you know, navigates all of these ails of, of, that, of his own doing and, and of his uh, situation, but also just the uncomfortableness of being that age, like being 12 and not necessarily driving with school or trying and finding something, but you don't know how to appropriately use an homage, you know, or, or understand copyright infringement or plagiarism. Um, it, it, yeah, it's, it's, it's a very relatable movie, even mm -hmm. though it's 60 years ago in post-war France and all in French. Um, but a lot of those feelings I think still really come through. I, I was very back and forth on whether or not I considered this a relatable movie because I'm so different in my own personal, you know, history and own, you know, personal experiences from what our main character had to go through. I was not a child that acted out. I was not a child that really fucked around and whatnot. Like I was Mr. Good kid, all that shit. Like I didn't get into any of these experiences. I didn't have any teachers that were, you know, former military officers, shit like that. Like I had to relate and in turn relate to kind of the struggle of just getting through the bullshit as a kid. I think that's probably the best way that you could even put that of just, there's so many little things that you just kind of need to fight through that in the grand scheme of things, aren't the craziest things in the world. Just like, Hey, do your homework, write a paper, you know, mommy and daddy don't love each other like little things you know and you can relate to that even if your life experiences are just so wildly distant from where this film takes place you can relate to those same tropes that every kid relates to regardless of what you've gone through in life yeah obviously there there's a scale to the events um, in part because it's, it's a movie that's what you're going to do. And also in part, because it's, po it's post-war France, like mm -hmm. shit is rough. Um, 
And even just, you know, living in what is that 1950s environment, even irrespective of the country is also just going to be different because there's a lot of comforts that we have today that, you know, even the lowest among us have today that they just didn't have in the fifties. They, you know, weren't really a thing. Um, and so obviously there's, there's lots of disconnects there and, you know, the a, a extremes of, of some of the circumstance, but I, I got, I got, I'm not going to make it sound like I was, you know, breaking into my dad's work and stealing computers, but <laughs> you know, I got in trouble when I was in school because you don't know how to handle yourself yet. And I think that's really where this comes in. It's, I don't, you don't know how to, how to be a person yet. You know, there's, there's a, there's a point in your life and it lasts longer for some people than others where you're not a kid anymore because you're not being coddled necessarily, you know, but you're also not an adult because you don't know how to fucking do anything. You know, I don't know how to way to put it. (laughs) Yeah. Like, like, Seriously, if he this guy is is reading um, a book by oh my god that fucking famous French author, um, Balzac you cannot come to me for help. There you go. Yep. Yeah, uh, Honoré de Balzac. Um, sure. And he stole a line, or a few lines, or a paragraph, or however much of his paper it was from that. And you know, obviously, when he when he's reading that book. He is really feeling something. He's like, I, I found something I like, and it is going to become part of me in some way. And that's a big moment. Mm-hmm. And that's the adult. The kid, though, is I don't know what to do with that. And the, he did the kid thing, which is copying it. Mm-hmm. And that's where, you know, you see that conflict in the classroom where he's like, I, I, I'm, I'm not plagiarizing in his mind, or at least in, in my mind, me putting myself in the shoes of that 12-year-old. I'm going like... I wouldn't think I'm plagiarizing. I would think that I felt those words or I don't know how else to put it. Like he put it so well, like, you know, like I felt that too, but didn't know how to write it down or some shit like that. But that's not how life works. And you don't know that yet. Um, And I think it's, it's those moments, the moments within the moments, (laughs) the feelings within the the scenes that uh, are, you're going to connect with more so than just the, (laughs) we're not, we didn't sleep on the floor of a printing press. (laughs) No, 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 no. I never got kicked out of my house as a kid because, you know, that's just not something that really happens anymore to 90% of the population. Especially at 12. Yeah, really. Maybe maybe at like 19 or 21 or some shit. Not 12. (laughs) No, not even close. Like there was a he needs to get a job conversation about a 12 year old. You're in, you're how old in tw- when you're 12, like sixth grade? Uh, yeah, seven, eighth, seventh, seventh, I think. I was, I feel like 14, 15 is like freshman year of high school. Yeah, because I, I think 14 was my freshman year of high school. So 13 was eighth grade. So 12 was seventh grade. Sure. That all sounds like it adds up. Oh, man. Yeah, just just go just go work scouring for landmines in the fields of France. That's good honest work. Yeah. There's worse jobs. <laughs> it could always be worse. Um so you know, the movie mostly is that. I don't think there's really any point to us going through the individual trials and tribulations of the film that it's mostly going to stem from the same kinds of places that just change of scenery and and um, situation. Uh, the film ultimately, though, ends. I, I don't really mind skipping up to that point, if uh, unless you have anything to say pre-ending of this. Um, no. All right. Uh, then on where we go. Um, the film basically ends with the the boy, you know, getting back together with his parents uh, and still being. Uh, troublemaker and he goes to a, an, an academy it's a little bit military academy like but there's there's uh, I think supposed to be some guys of not mental health per se but like psychological adjustment I think might be a more apt term for it since it definitely didn't seem like a comforting place um, again very much so military-esque um, and during one of the jogs as the uh 
students, attendees, whatever the right word is, um, moved about the campus. Yeah, right. Very cadet-like. Um, our main character breaks rank and starts running through uh, this French countryside and just running down streets and running and running and running and finally comes to the beach. He's never seen the beach. It was a point brought up earlier in the film and he runs all the way up to the water and he puts his feet in the water and he looks out onto the ocean and then he looks into the camera and the movie ends. Uh. Yes. Uh, What did you think of the ending of our film? It was bittersweet. You know, it's one of those endings where you want to see the character kind of make it in a sense, you know, you want to see him succeed. You want to see him, you know, do well in life. You want to see him kind of get his feet under him after he's gone through so much. And, and something as simple as just, Hey, seeing something memorable, seeing something, you know, that would be a, you know, major life event is a great way to kind of end that. Uh, so I, I think it ended on a really nice note. Yeah. You know, with, like, like you said, with, with the coming of age stories, I like, know there's a certain expectation that you're going to ultimately reach the coming of age, you know, mm-hmm. um, a movie. I know you and I both like um, Kings of summer. Mm-hmm. Uh, you very much so get that moment at the end, you know, yeah. uh, you Keep very much so get mustache. He, he grows a mustache. He's, he, he almost dies, but he doesn't. And he comes to terms with the fact that his friend is dating the girl he liked. Yeah. Um, and this does and doesn't give you that. Because, you know, the idea that he breaks rank still shows a self-determination that you, I guess, could ascribe to the childlike not recognizing or caring about the consequences of one's actions. Cause again, if you're three and you break something at the store, it's not really your fault necessarily. Like you're three, mm-hmm. you're an idiot. Yeah. All three-year-olds are idiots. Um, it should be the fault of the person who assumes that the child isn't going to be an idiot. Right. Hey mom, why'd you let me hold a glass vase at Macy's? I, I'm, I'm, I'm three and I'm can't hold stupid. this. Yeah. <laughs> it weighs two pounds to you. And that's like 900 pounds to a three-year-old. <laughs> um, but at the same time, you know, the, that self-determination finally seemed as though it had a destination and an arrival point where a lot of the other rebellious acts he did didn't have that. You know, they stole the typewriter hoping to hawk it to get money to do this, to get to that. To, and while that's all like the semblance of a plan, once it like fell apart, they, you know, him and his friend just started pointing fingers at each other. You know, yeah. and, and there's a lot of that throughout the movie where it's like, I, I did this, but I, I didn't really think it all the way through or I don't know. What, I don't know what the destination is to what I'm doing. Right. I'm doing it because I'm 12 and, and I haven't figured it all out yet because I'm 12. I'm 12 and really fucking stupid. <laughs> because again, most 12 year olds really are. Fucking stupid. Yeah. Um, and you know, this, him going to the beach is really the first time that he did something that was against what he was supposed to do, but seemed as though he actually had thought out what he was going to do and where he wanted to be with it. And I think it's that kind of small growth, really like small scale Mm -hmm. internal growth. That is what makes this movie, I think so impactful. It makes the ending so impactful. Um, It's not necessarily a huge tearjerker the way, you know, like a big dramatic ending would have been, but it's certainly the most like, yeah, it's grounded, but it also has like the most like cinematic part of the movie in it i think you know mm-hmm. what i mean yeah i get what you're saying like it feels the most hollywood um yes but it, like you said like it's it is also very grounded in a very real way and i i think it's that type of small scale depth that gives the movie its feeling sure yeah 
Yeah. What's the <laughs> final score? Uh, so all around, I I haven't watched this in years, and I think this is going to be a sooner rather than later rewatch for me, especially since it's only on HBO Max, and that's very easy. Um, and these subtitles fucking worked. Um, like <laughs> some of the others we've watched. Uh, um, so I honestly, I'm giving this the full bore, man. I'm going five oh, out of five on this guy. Look at you. You know, I, I had settled in, like I had in my mouth the, the, the number four and a half. And as it came out, yeah, I just you have four and a half in your mouth. That's square pretty big for you. Deep down in, in the jowls, I had four and a half, but uh, couldn't quite fit it all out there. So, <laughs> uh, dick jokes. You know, it's one of those movies where I like it, I connect with it. It wasn't something I would consider, you know, a favorite one. I would go out of my way to see again, one that I would really recommend to someone that wouldn't necessarily appreciate it. Like it's not something I think a, a wide audience or at least a, a wide audience of people I am friends with, which already not a wide audience. Hate to break it to you listeners, but you know, I'm no, uh, Wow, the bar to come up with literally anyone who would be of common knowledge that is known for being famous and the fact that I could not come up with a single name and I've now been talking for like two minutes and still have not been able to come up with the name is fucking humiliating. Um, but I'd give it a three and a half. Right on. <clears throat> Again, oh, uh I really don't like this era of film. And it's just not my cup of tea. As we have discussed. I also wanted to point out, just as a fun factola, um, <clears throat> the 400 blows is a literal translation of a French idiom. So it does, if you're wondering, hey, why is this movie called The 400 Blows? It seems to have nothing to do with this movie. You're right. Um, because that idiom basically translates to uh, to live a wild life but it literally translates to um, well actually it literally translates to the 400 dirty tricks which they turn into the 400 blows because the 400 dirty tricks sound stupid as does the Sounds 400 like blows a large group of horse um, in which case uh, other more apt translations of this idiom would be something like to raise hell Um you know, the idea that it's reflective upon troublesome behavior, not like getting punched in the face 400 times, which when I first heard of this movie, I had assumed it was a boxing movie for that exact <laughs> reason. Yes. So I had no idea what to expect. Uh, this would have been very, very far down the list of things to predict this film would be about. Hey, you ever seen the 400 blows? Ooh, what's that? It's about a 12-year-old boy in France. Fucking what? <laughs> the, uh, I will say, the porn parody for this just writes itself. Oh, very readily. Um, but, you know, all 18 and the uh, senior year in high school and you got to <laughs> fuck that teacher. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> got to give 400 blowjobs, man. Oof. <laughs> Such a naughty girl i guess in this instance i don't know we are not gonna write this porno because we can't stoop that low we can stoop pretty low we've been there we'll do we it can again. get there but not not this all right and let's get into our next movie that is once upon a time in hollywood uh so many ways we could have gone there once upon a time in like that's that could be a straight up Jeopardy category with how many films have been named that. Give me a few. Once upon a time in Hollywood. Once upon a time in the West. Once upon a time in America. Once upon a time. I think that's a TV show. I'm trying to. You had the ones I was gonna say. Yeah, I know the easy ones. Yeah. <laughs> I picked those for a reason. <laughs> yeah, that's all I can think of. But that's still a lot. That's a lot. Yeah, like that could still fill out a Jeopardy category. Probably. Uh, once upon a time in Queens, once upon a time in Mexico, once upon oh, a time yeah. in Wonderland. Yeah, there's a few more. Mexico was the other one I was trying to think of. 
I have seen that one. I have not seen Once Upon a Time in Wonderland. Anyway, um, so Once Upon a Time. My body's Wonderland. All right, John Mayer in the house, ladies and gentlemen, here to join us to talk about this Quentin Tarantino vehicle from 2019. Uh, written and directed by Quentin Tarantino. Uh, oh, it stars Leonardo DiCaprio, Brad Pitt, and Margot Robbie. Um, this film had an estimated budget of $90 million. Oh, my God. Yes. And, yeah, $85 million of it was the film budget, and the rest of it was actors. Um, <laughs> Which is why I need 90 miles of film. Uh, and then its cumulative worldwide gross was $374 million. So that is certainly a success. Uh, the tagline for this movie is the ninth film from Quentin Tarantino. Honestly, fantastic because it needs to be nothing else. Gotta love taglines that are just facts. Um, yeah. This film was one, two Oscars on the back of uh, two, four, six, eight, ten nominations, it won for best performance by an actor in a supporting role for Brad Pitt. This was Brad Pitt's first acting Oscar, though his second Oscar, he had also won um, for best motion picture for 12 years a slave a few years prior. Really his first Oscar as an actor? Yeah. Wow. Okay. Yes, it is. I, I, and it, it's... Uh, Could have sworn he would have won one for Interview with a Vampire, you know? Huh. He was good in that. I'm not even going to lie. But yeah, it's only his uh, his fourth acting nomination. He's been nominated for three times for Best Picture. Um, before this, before Once Upon a Time, he was nominated three times for Best Picture and three times for acting. Um, so this was his fourth acting nomination and ultimately his first win for that um, type of category. So anyway... It also won for Best Achievement in Production Design for Barbara Ling and Nancy Hay. Uh, it was nominated, okay. but did not win, for Best Motion Picture of the Year for David Heyman, Shannon McIntosh, and Quentin Tarantino. Best Achievement in Directing for Quentin Tarantino. Best Performance by an Actor in a Leading Role for Leonardo DiCaprio. Best Original Screenplay for Quentin Tarantino. Best Achievement in Cinematography for Robert Richardson. Best Achievement in Costume Design for... Uh, Ariane, 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 Ariane. I really want to say Ariana. It's not Ariane, Ariane Phillips. Uh, best achievement in sound mixing for Michael Minkler, Christian P. Minkler, Michael Minkler. That's Michael Minkler. I know Michael Minkler and Christian P. Minkler. Um, and Mark Ulano. And then best achievement in sound editing for Wiley Statement, the coyote some very fake names working on this movie. Um, this film is about a faded television actor and his stunt double drive to achieve, uh, strive, I should say, to achieve fame and success in the final years of Hollywood's golden age in 1969, Los Angeles. Corwin Heller, this was your movie. Tell me about it. I'd still argue that they do drive a fair bit. There's a they're, good they're, amount of driving. Man likes his, likes his cars. Yeah, hey, I don't blame him. Um, man, I don't know how else to say this. This is turned into my favorite Quentin Tarantino movie. Um, I just, I adore this film. I think it is perfect. I really have been struggling to find a way to properly phrase my feelings towards it uh, and phrase the, you know, the the reason I adore this film so much. And I think the closest I'm going to get is it's vibe. It just has an unbeatable vibe throughout the entire film. And I love it. I just, I enjoy watching this film more than Life itself. almost any other. <laughs> uh, he you joke, but yeah. <laughs> I just like there at no point in this movie do I think it's going too slow or it's going, you know, or, or anything's wasted. It's just like the penultimate, you know, Quentin Tarantino, just extravagant dialogue fueled experience. And I just fucking love it so much. I, I saw it 
I think four times in theaters, which I don't think I've ever seen a film in theaters more than twice uh, before this. It's just so much fun. I just fucking love it. Like I, I don't have anything I dislike about it. And in 2019, that was the first year I really started to kind of watch films watch all the films that were coming out that year in preparation for the Oscars, the Academy Awards, you know, the, all the major film pieces. Uh, And that was like number three for me at the time behind 1917 and Parasite and is quickly turning into just my absolute favorite. Yeah, this is, it's such a good movie. And part of the reason it's such a good movie is it's, got a lot of the feeling of a Quentin Tarantino movie, but applied in a different way. Mm. One of the constant criticisms you get of like a Christopher Nolan is that he keeps just doing the Christopher Nolan thing, but more Christopher Nolaner than the last time he Christopher Nolan. And that is absolutely what Tarantino could do, but he finds ways to subvert his own storytelling to find different avenues to be eclectic with how the narrative structure of his story goes while telling something of a different story. So like in um, his early movies, like Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction, Mm -hmm. they are nonlinear stories that jump around in time, right? But they're still telling the same story. They're still both going forward in some way to achieve, to tell pieces of what will be the same end result. And that's mm-hmm. not necessarily what you're getting out of this in a very interesting way. You are getting two side-by-side tales told linearly in time, but having mm-hmm. nothing to do with each other, but are still paralleling each other in what they are trying to say. And that's what's interesting about it. You know, Mm -hmm. the Leonardo DiCaprio character is struggling through the latter part of his career. The Brad Pitt character absolutely is not. He's straight fucking chilling. Leonardo DiCaprio is trying to reconcile how he can portray the sense of a tough guy, of a cowboy, and maintain the demeanor that made him famous. And Brad Pitt does all that absolutely effortlessly. Brad Pitt just is that. It's the story of a man trying to be a cowboy versus a man who is a cowboy. The man who's trying to be an action star versus the man who is an action star. And those two stories on paper have absolutely nothing to do with each other. They Mm -hmm. intersect very sparingly. And yet have everything to do with each other from a narrative perspective and constantly switching between the two to highlight those differences and similarities is what is makes this movie, I think so fucking effective and shows those flashes of the Quentin Tarantino style of filmmaking that we know and love those constant jump points between storytelling, uh, you know, or parts of the tale being told, but introduces these other concepts that you ne- didn't necessarily get out of the other ones because he's doing something new. Mm-hmm. It's it's wonderful. I really didn't like it the first time. Not that I didn't like it. I really was disappointed the first time I saw it. Because seeing it in theaters for the first time. Not knowing anything about the film. Other than the fact that it involves something with Charles Manson. And the three main leads in it. I had no idea what to expect. And when I, I was kind of, oh, this is just Quentin Tarantino doing Quentin Tarantino. This is nothing really special. This is nothing new and exciting. This is nothing that's going to blow me away. And, and I was so hyped for this movie to begin with. I was just disappointed. And then I saw it a second time because I knew, hey, you need to give this a truly fair shot, you know watch it again you know you'll be able to pick up more you'll be able to break it down easier like you know if you don't like a movie that you should like usually the second time you watch it at least in my experience myself you'll like it more and you understand it a lot more and you can appreciate those things that you 
know you should be appreciating and oh my god it was like watching a different film you know catching all those little things catching you know this parallel structure catching you know the fact that these are two narrative storylines which by all means don't make any genuine connection with each other other than coincidence to being oh incredibly intertwined and incredibly you know well written uh, to bring the, them together. I just, I fucking adore this. I love watching it. I could watch this movie three more times this week and still enjoy it each time. I have said it before and I'll say it now on the pod. This is the only film I've ever watched where I have enjoyed the movie more every single time I watch it. It is a linear progression of joy. <laughs> Correct. And it's like, like, you know, like you have films that you love and you love watching them, but by all means you're always kind of chasing some nostalgia aspect of like, wow, the first time I saw this, I was completely blown away. I love this movie, but it's mostly to, you know, try and chase that feeling you had when you first watched it. This is every time I watch it, I grow more fond of it, find more things to like, have a better experience. Do you have a preference on which side of the movie you enjoy watching more between the, uh, Rick Dalton or the Cliff Booth side? I'm a Cliff Booth man myself. I fucking love Brad Pitt in this. I don't know if I necessarily think he should have deserved, you know, best supporting actor because while, you know, it, there's definitely a lot of subtlety to the character, it's Brad Pitt. Hey, just kind of be Brad Pitt for an hour and 40 minutes. It just happens to be the perfect represent like the perfect casting for this character like the character could have just been you know written as brad pitt and they just changed the name when they actually you know have the film and it doesn't really lose much um he's just he's perfect in it i will say two things to that because that came up a lot when he won this award and I fervently disagree with the notion that because you were cast exceedingly well, right. you should be exempt from winning a category. Just because he is Brad Pitt in this movie doesn't mean that this movie, like this movie needed a guy to be Brad Pitt. There just happens to be a guy who is Brad Pitt who is able to do this and that should not be held against him because it's very hard to be Brad Pitt. Otherwise we'd all be Brad Pitt because yeah. Brad Pitt seems like a great fucking guy to be. I'll tell I you also what, say, if I had the choice of being Brad Pitt, I would choose to be Brad Pitt. I don't need only, a second option. The only mistake this man ever made was breaking up with Jennifer Aniston. And that is it. Um, and I think he knows that. I think he does too. And yeah. the other thing is uh, the other nominees in this category sucked that year. Really? What were they? I honestly don't remember whatsoever. Al Pacino and Joe Pesci for the Irishman. Awful. Anthony Hopkins for the two popes. Yeah. And Tom Hanks for A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood. Are you serious? Those were the nominees? Yeah, that was, and Brad Pitt for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Like, he had it locked up from the fucking word go. Yeah, wow, okay. I um, I don't really have anything to fault anymore. That's just such a bad... Yeah, there's uh, not a lot there. I genuinely uh, support all that much, so... Okay, all right. Good job, yeah. Brad Pitt. You win. <laughs> And I, I think the idea of liking the Brad Pitt side of the story more also makes a lot of sense because, again, of how the movie is structured. Part of what I was saying earlier about how Brad Pitt is being the character that um, DiCaprio is constantly trying to be also makes their feel like a movie within a movie. Mm -hmm. That Brad Pitt is going about his day isn't just him going about his day. It is built up. It is cinematically a movie happening that is outside the scope of what is happening in DiCaprio's life. So it's almost like you're pivoting between raw documentary and an actual golden era film taking place. You know, you're, you're part watching, you know, the, uh, final days of Giovanni Versace and you're part watching Butch Cassidy, the Sundance kid. Like it, it, it's. I don't know how to swim. <laughs> I 
I don't know if that was a genuine laugh or not. No, because he laughs, and then what's the line he follows it up with? Uh, or do they just run? Yeah, I think they just jump. Yeah, they just, he, yeah Paul, Paul Newman laughs, and then they just start running, and then uh, Robert Effer goes, oh, oh shit! And they jump in. <laughs> It's it's such a fucking yeah, I, that's my favorite western. One, I love that movie. Two. Wait, wait, what? Wait, I don't know how to swim. Yeah, that's how it goes. Oh, I should watch that. I haven't watched it ever. I I might pick it soon then. I think I honestly I think you need to. Um. Now this is also because there has to be one every year. This is a love letter to Hollywood. They they often exist. Um. Often, every every year, literally it feels one like. every year. Yeah, every year. I will say this one definitely touches more on the, not heavily. I'll add, but more than you usually get on the darker side of some of these figures, or at least more mm. of the internal struggle than you get. You know, we saw a little bit of that with Mank as well, but it was more confined to just Mank. Whereas I think you know seeing DiCaprio be like this and him being an amorphous, you know, like not real person makes it easier for you to look at him as symbolic of a lot of actors of that era. Um, whereas again, you know, like Mank is just Mank. You know, that's a real guy. It's easy mm-hmm. to just be like, well, that's fucking Mank. Um, and, but at the end of the day, there's still a lot of, you know, big fat smooches to, to Hollywood in here. Um Hollywood basically saving uh, uh, fucking Sharon Tate's life basically at the end. Like if only Hollywood was there to save Sharon Tate, she'd still be alive today. (sighs) Yeah. Um, uh, I know it's something we've talked about before because you don't think it should have gotten the recognition that it did, but DiCaprio's acting in his kind of breakdown in his trailer after that scene. I know you said it's because of it being a uh, what is it like a, a callback or just like a stealing a shot from another film and it's whatever it is. I forget what you were saying. It, it honestly doesn't matter all that much. Um, I still think that is like a you know, shivers down your spine kind of moment and performance from DiCaprio at that point. I love that. Did I say that when the movie came out? You did. I don't even remember saying that. Hmm. You were like, it's actually, you know, this was a, a shot from a film that came out in like the 50s. You know what? And- I, all right. I have to watch that scene again because I this, this conversation is now sounding very familiar. Yeah. Yeah. It, granted, it's also partly because like this just sounds just to a T like something you would say. Yes, um, it very much so does. <laughs> <laughs> this is a very Josh statement through and through. Um, but yeah, uh, watch it again because it's also a fucking amazing scene. So what because, you know, I mentioned Sharon Tate and she her character anyway has does have a decent amount of screen time for someone that is obviously not one of the two main characters. What do you think of the Sharon Tate subplot in this film? It is. It was so confusing. I really didn't understand any reason why it was really included other than just being, Oh, that's, you know, Sharon Tate. That was a really cool, famous thing that happened during all this time. Not really cool. I'm going to choose to rephrase that. Uh, what happened to Sharon Tate was really not cool. Um, but she, like, again, like Marco Robbie is just so perfectly cast in that role. It's just such a fun storyline to follow. Like, it's just such a positive, um, you know, abstract, like storyline to have going along with what's going on with, you know, Cliff and going on with DiCaprio just in every capacity. It's just, it's so different seeing that what like an A-list Hollywood celebrity and like a C-list Hollywood celebrity are both going through. Yeah. It's, it's, it's the, the parts that Cliff Booth would spit on are the parts that Sharon Tate would 
be over the moon to have. Like mm-hmm. she's going to a movie to see herself in. I, I don't think she had a big part in that movie she was in, right? Uh, she? she played like the maid. So like she was on yeah. the poster, but she's not a headliner. Right, right. I wanted to make sure I wasn't wrong about that because I, as we know, I often get those minor details wrong. <laughs> um, yeah, and, and, you know, it's that. I think she also represents the most, the biggest smooch on the lips to Hollywood there because, you know, you're seeing the joy that movies can bring if you let go of the hubris and the ego of the career, which is very easy to say if you have a career and are getting paid to make movies in Hollywood, (laughs) Um, because otherwise you're poor and it (laughs) sucks. But at the same time, you know, that's, again, that's like the whole, that's why there's a big conflict with writing too much of a love letter to Hollywood, the duality of the town. But, um, you know, seeing her really just kind of, ease her way through her day um, staving off impending doom accidentally or at least not experiencing um, a historical trauma uh, Mm -hmm. a murder if you will (laughs) being uh, brutally killed by a deranged cult family famously um, to even take more of the edge off of that experience of of the, the horrors of her story um, and to add to the mythology of the Brad Pitt character, I mean, it really is such a sharp contrast to the other two storylines, which, ha- like, you know, like Corbin said, have this, like, kind of more obvious interconnectivity, whereas the Sharon Tate one really doesn't. Mm-hmm. And it can be very jarring the first couple times you watch it, because it very much so seems so out of tune with the rest of the movie. But that's part of why it's there. Oh, it's so perfect. It's so perfect. I mean, that is why it's there. <laughs> yeah. Um. Yeah, I I have nothing else about this, really. Do you? I also don't have anything else about this. Um, we talked about a lot of it, but yeah, I mean, like, there's a bunch of reference stuff that I would love to talk about, but like, I fully understand that that's not exactly you know the most enjoyable thing to discuss with this movie. So, yeah, I'm good. All right. Well, uh, this, Corbin, this is your movie, so why don't you give me your final rating and review? Um, I think this is Quentin Tarantino's best work. I think he is a truly masterful director, masterful writer and filmmaker, and I think this is the pinnacle of his work, despite everything that has come out. Uh, in his collection, you know, the Pulp Fictions, the Reservoir Dogs, the Death Proofs, uh, you know, the really great ones. Um, this is a perfect five out of five. I just, it's hard to find a movie that tickles you in a way that this one does, where like I'm just, I obsess over how much I love it. Um, I feel weird saying the word tickled, but at the same time, fuck it. Uh, five out of five. Yeah, I'm giving this a, a solid four and a half um, for no reason, as we've often talked about with the difference between four and a half and five. Uh, this is, oh my God, it's it's just so damn good. Um, I think with age and time, that five might end up creeping in um, as it already has settled in for Corwin. But as it stands right now, this is, uh, this is where it lands for me, and it's excellent. Touche. All right, Corwin, what you got on deck for next week? Oh, you know how you asked me that at the beginning of the show? And I said, well, I'm down between a couple of movies. I just haven't decided yet. I'll figure it out when uh, we record. Um, I never did that. Uh, so that's on me. Um, oh, <laughs> Josh, uh, what country do you appreciate the cinematography of more? Uh, Germany or Scotland? Um. Oh man, I mean Germany has some hits in there. Mm. I'm impressed to think of a Scottish one, mm. but I'm intrigued by the fact that you said Scotland. So mm. I think I'm going to have to go with Scotland. Yes, that was my strategy there. Uh, my Scottish film, which I, I genuinely don't even know if it was made by Scots or just 
features Sean Connery. Uh, Highlander. Oh my god. Yeah. Oh, all right. There can be only one, man. There can be only one. All right. I haven't seen Highlander since I was very young because I did not think it was worth it, but I guess that's where we're going. Yep. Uh, Shit. All right. So that's Highlander, (laughs) I guess. Um, For Corwin, I'm going to go with the movie that I actually meant to pick last week and forgot that I was supposed to pick it and uh, we'll be picking it this week. And that is Fight Club. Oh, you forgot to talk about it. I forgot not to talk about it. Oh, right. <laughs> However that works. Yeah. Sorry. Oh, we're so dumb. That's 1986's Highlander and 1999's Fight Club. So get your weird fantasy music playlist going and your late 90s pop punk fan uh, uh, playlists going cue up the pixies here we go um as we delve into those two next week (laughs) um corwin anything else before we get out of here no all right well if you want to follow the show on twitter you can do so at big screen juice we never post from there so if you'd like to follow uh corwin on twitter you can do so at corwin heller to follow me on twitter you can do so at joshua d tracy uh, send emails to the show. You can do so at juicingthebigscreen at gmail.com. And until next week, y'all have a good one. Bye.